dedication, hard work, plus patience. To some more my sacrifice, I'm done waiting. I'm done waiting. Told you that I wasn't playing. Now you hear what I've been saying. Dedication. This is Rumble with Michael Moore, and I happen to be Michael Moore. Welcome, everybody, uh, to my podcast uh, today. There's a lot going on this week. Well, I guess you could say that. I mean, in every week, we're trying to deal with so many things uh, that are happening. Anyways, I appreciate you uh, tuning in uh, to this podcast. And I have an incredible guest with me here today. His name is Sean King. Okay, so you know who he is. And and if you don't know, you're about to you're about to uh, experience that which is Sean King. Sean actually was a big help to myself and Basil Basil Hamden, the executive producer of, of Rumble, back in the winter when we decided we wanted to do this podcast and had never done this before and didn't know how to do it. And of course, Sean's been doing it. I think he's had one or two, maybe three iterations of various podcasts. But it, it we asked him if we could um, ask him some questions. He said, sure, come on over to Brooklyn. And he does his his office is there in the Brooklyn Navy Yards. And if you don't know what that is, it's not like, like a single uh, pier with a tourist destroyer like the intrepid that's in Manhattan. this is like a this is this place is so massive and they've turned it into a whole bunch of things and and, and some of these are these like incubator sites where there's all these people just trying to start up their own gig or whatever it's pretty cool but i think by the time we got to the entrance of the brooklyn navy yards and then went on a journey to find sean's uh, office where he does his podcast and where he does all his other great political work uh, it, it took us about like 25, 30 minutes. And I, I we walked in there and we said, uh, Sean, um, seriously, when they come to take us all away, you're going to be the last one they pick up because they're never going to fucking find you. And uh, it's like, <laughs> it's a, you know, there he is. He's listening already. So, so let me just hold back, man. No, no, it's, <laughs> no, it's okay. And thanks for suggesting the Nipsey hustle uh, that we, uh, that we played you in on. But let me just let me just tell people give you let me give you my uh, introduction here because you you are well deserving and, and worthy of what I'm about to say. Uh, Sean King is one of our great writers these days. He's also a journalist. Uh, he's he's appeared in uh, so many papers. He's a column in the New York Daily News, but he's also one of our most important activists. Uh, he's the co-founder of the Real Justice Pack. You may have heard of that. This PAC is working to elect reform-minded prosecutors, and we're going to get into talking about this because some of them have actually been elected, and they are doing some crazy-ass stuff that you would never think a prosecutor would be doing. Um, Sean is also um, running this thing uh, or helping to run this thing called Flip the Senate for this November, and and and. What they're doing is exactly what the title implies. We, if a Democrat is elected to the White House, we only need three seats. That's it. We just need to flip three seats. Keep the ones we've got. Flip three. The Senate and the House is ours. No more bullshit. And and we'll work fast, hopefully, to fix a lot of the things that 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 we need to fix. Um, Sean's also the um, he's also the founder. Of a of a, a brand new media outlet uh, just started here in the last year called the North Star, and his podcast is called the Breakdown, 
with Sean King. He has a new book out. It's called Make Change, How to Fight Injustice, Dismantle Systematic Oppression, and Own Our Future. And the uh, foreword was written by a first-time writer, Senator Bernie Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, welcome. Yeah, man, it's so good to be on here with you. And it seems like this year is so weird. It seems like years ago that you all were at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. I know. It wasn't that long ago. It was this year. Yes. In the winter of 2020. Yes. But it seems like. Uh, and it was in between you and I being on the road with Bernie. That's right. You know, back and forth. And it does seem like. Two years ago, almost. Yeah, yeah. The, the 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 concept of time during the pandemic is so strange, and even you know, like I was thinking about certain things that happened in January and February, and it just seems so long ago. And this year is just one of those years that I think people will always remember as just one of the most disturbing, problematic years. And my hope is that we can finish strong, but but our country is struggling in major ways. Yeah, well, it's there's so much. Uh, I mean, just the pandemic itself. I mean, how how are you holding up? Have you have you been inside? You know, I've I've, I've locked myself down basically. I've been in, inside this apartment. My my wife has asthma. One mm -hmm. of my daughters has a severe case of asthma, and we even to protect both of them with their respiratory challenges. Like, yeah, we are all really hermits, and uh, we do very little. And you know in some ways for my own safety and security, I wasn't like out and about town anyway. Like even when we were at the Brooklyn Navy yard, part of that was like a security thing. But now we do I mean, we're, we're homebodies in a major way. We've been yeah. able to, we, we've, you know, we've been able to spend good time together, but you know, my, my heart is breaking that our country has, has failed in so many ways and um, mm. that that people's careers and livelihood have been lost in. And I continue just as when we were campaigning for Bernie, I continue to be frustrated with Democrats and Republicans that their ideas are still not kind of rising to the moment. So yeah, the, the democratic party is still not endorsing Medicare for all. Um, you're still not seeing like sweeping uh, criminal justice reform plans be approved. And so in this moment where Democrats could really advance a deeply progressive agenda that's already popular with everyday people, they still kind of refuse to to move the needle in ways that I think would really matter. What can we do about that? Because I think we all know we've got to get rid of Trump, but um my niece uh, sent me this uh, this link to a group that's uh, formed. I think it's right now mostly just on Instagram called uh, Settle for Biden. It's the Settle for Biden group, and it's actually kind of funny because they all they all have this sort of they post these things like, "Yeah, okay, all right, I'll, I'll settle for Biden," but you know, it, it, they're going to vote and they're going to vote and all. It's, it's, it seems like a lot of people who supported either Bernie or Elizabeth Warren have made up this uh, Settle for Biden group. But what they, I think what they want to say is, is that they're not sitting this out and they're going to show up Yeah, and they're going to remove Donald J. Trump. That's right. You know, I have a daughter that's 18 and a daughter that's 20. And this for both of them, this will be their first presidential election. And 
they traveled all over the country with me campaigning for Bernie. Like I spoke at Bernie's kickoff event in Brooklyn. I spoke at his kickoff event in Vermont and we were really hopeful. And Joe Biden was generally like the least preferred major candidate among young people. And virtually every other major candidate had higher enthusiasm ratings than Biden. And, and Young people have had to learn a lesson quick, fast and in a hurry that you and I and your listeners have learned is that sometimes you get an opportunity to campaign and vote for somebody you're crazy about. And when you get that opportunity, you should cherish it. You should relish it. You should go for it. That's how I felt about Bernie. Other times, though, you don't get that. And when you don't get that, and that's going to be a lot. Yeah, that's going to be very frequent. Yeah. Where you have to be more pragmatic than than you want to be where you you don't get to necessarily be a dreamer you have to like really say yeah i i am settling for this candidate this i don't prefer this candidate's personality or style or policy positions but i've done that many times it's frustrating it, we, we 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 do it more than we should but it's part of being mature politically and for me I've tried to take Bernie's lead in that sense. It's like, shit, if he can get over himself and with all the effort and energy that he has put into two presidential races, if he can still muster up the energy to campaign for an opponent that he doesn't quite see eye to eye with on most issues, then I should be able to do the same thing. Mm. And um, but you and I, and I think a lot of people listening to this podcast, we are not people who've lived our lives by settling. We didn't, we, we, we didn't settle for any of a number of things throughout our lives, whether it was, that's right. but, but there were those times when we've all worked jobs that we didn't, didn't want to work. Absolutely. Um, uh, some people settle for relationships that they probably shouldn't be in or stay in. Other people settle for, well, you just have to get up and go to work in the morning. How many times do we wake up and not want to go to work? Yeah. And, uh, and you say to yourself, uh, well, I don't want to do this, but I got to do it, obviously. So, it, I mean, it feels a lot. Now, listen, there's the, the I don't I, I want to say rabid Biden supporters listening to this because I don't think there are any rabid uh, Biden supporters. Rabid only in the sense that they can't wait to vote for him to get rid of Trump. That I get. But and that's, um, a, real, and that's a real that's a real motivation. Like I is that OK? Is that can people make can we make our peace with we, that? It's where we are. And I haven't I haven't done an endorsement of Joe Biden. I, I love Donald Trump. I think he's, you know, a, a clear a clear danger to our country. But for me, um, we'll have one of two options uh, in terms of who's going to be the next president. It will be Joe Biden or Donald Trump. I hate that that is the position. I got over that months ago. I did the same thing with with Hillary Clinton. And and campaigned for Hillary Clinton and, and wrote op eds on her behalf because I believe the way Bernie believed. I believe that Donald Trump could really win that race. Um, I think it looks like the moment is is going to be harder for Donald Trump to win. But he's a nebulous opponent. He's dirty. He, you know, he will. Oh, yeah, don't trust it. Don't trust it one minute. Yeah. And so even his. Just the things that he's doing to undermine the election already. And the only reason he's doing that is he sees the writing on the wall. If he thought he was going to win in, in the fall, 
he wouldn't be undermining the election. He would be doing everything to prop up its legitimacy. But because right. he sees the polls and 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 even the polls inside of the polls look bad for him. Right. Um, people are still going to have to vote. But for me, there's still a lot to be excited about. I'm excited about people who are running for Congress. I'm excited yes. about right. um, you talked about some of the prosecutors and district attorneys that we're working for. And so for me, I I go all in behind any candidate that I back and support. But, you know, I'm thankful and grateful that um, our life doesn't just completely rise or fall with who's president. There, there are city council races that we have to care about here in New York and all over the country. There are state legislative races. And the truth is, for the things that I fight for, particularly around justice reform, very few of those things happen on the federal level. They happen city by city, county by county, and state by state. And so um, I, Trump causes real harm to people and communities that I care about. But even if we have four more years of Trump, I couldn't just pack it in because there'd be thousands of other races that we have to still care about. And so that's, that's, where, I, that's where I get my energy. It's, it's why I keep moving. There's, uh, there's still... There's still policies worth fighting for and, and people and communities and candidates worth fighting for, even if we didn't get. And here's the thing. We were just with Bernie. We were just the last to lose the feeling that we had every other candidate and all of their supporters felt that uh, as well. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a unique pain in losing last. And um, because you know how close you were to being able to win. but um, I still every day look at this moment and feel like if you went into a lab and made a politician for a particular moment, Bernie was literally made for mm. a pandemic and mm. he was made for a national crisis, his policies, his character, and, um, and he'll have to lead in other ways. But uh, he would have been a great candidate. He would have defeated Trump and would have been a great president. Yeah. What what, what did happen? I, I've been kind of struggling with this, trying to mm-hmm. think about, because we were all out on the road. And yep. um, uh, we won the first three states, uh, whether, I mean, some were caucus, some were uh, by election. But uh, Bernie either won the popular vote or he won the most delegates. I mean, it was, it, nobody had done, nobody won the, po- he'd won the popular vote in all the first three states of Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. No one had ever done that in any party in our, in our history. So that's so huge. And, and he had major momentum going into what was next. And so what was next was South Carolina. And um, all of a sudden Jim Clyburn decides the election for all of us. And, and, and they're all the mainstream media and all the stories about, well, you know, there, there hasn't, there the first three states don't have many black citizens. So we're going to really see where black America is by going to South Carolina. And I'm, and with all due respect to South Carolina, don't, don't people take this the wrong way, but maybe it's, and maybe it's because I come from Flint and Detroit and whatever, yeah. but the fact that this could get, that this would be over between that Saturday and then Tuesday from set. And then, so Biden wins South Carolina after Clyburn anoints him. And then three days later, he wins all these super Tuesday States. Well, here's, here's, here's another way to look at it. 
in all of the states where Biden campaigned for months, he got his ass handed to him. Right. In, in the places where he spent a ton of time campaigning, legitimately trying to earn people's votes from Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, he got crushed. Because yeah, look, he didn't come in second or no. third. Right. Or fourth in some places he did come in fifth and there was zero enthusiasm and and people were basically making a clear statement that we had a chance to really really inspect his his candidacy his policies and we prefer these other three or four people over him and in states like Nevada and others the 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 gap was enormous and I think, you know, part of what frustrated me there is that he barely even campaigned anywhere else and um, including South Carolina. And so he he put his eggs there. Um, you know, Clyburn actually had promised that he was not going to make an endorsement before. Uh, and and even Kamala Harris's campaign, I had several friends who worked for her campaign. They had really held Clyburn's feet to the fire on that when she was still in the race. And uh, and he came in and made that endorsement. But that that ended up being such a huge deciding factor. Plus, um, the Democratic establishment with Amy Klobuchar, with Beto, with Mayor Pete, all basically endorsed Joe and said, this is what we want. And it was because they saw that we were about to win California, and we did. Right. Uh, we were about to win Texas, and the only reason we didn't was because of this major endorsement kind of machine that came out at the last minute. And um, so that's what happened against Bernie. But I look, I, I always look at each camp like I take them all personally, and I just think like, damn, what could I have done differently? What could the staff have done differently? Um, I think the fallout between, um, not just Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, but Bernie's campaign and supporters and Elizabeth Warren's campaign and supporters, I think it was way more costly than most people understood. And, and in the end, Democrats were willing to, co the Democratic establishment was willing to coalesce behind Joe in a way that the progressive wing of the party just was not willing to do. If, if that means uh, Elizabeth Warren's faction and Bernie's faction, they couldn't get over their differences in the way that all the other factions could behind Joe. And I don't, I don't just put that off on Warren's camp. It, it was, I think it was personal. It was, um, you know, there was a lot of kind of tension and animosity there at the end of the day people that other candidates were willing to put that to the side to get behind Joe Biden. And um, the, the, the Bernie camp and the Warren camp just couldn't do it. I think that mattered. Um, Joe Biden also did something that was just peculiar, like this notion that you could basically bail out on the first three states and pick up after that that just kind of went against conventional wisdom and ultimately that, you know, that worked for him and, and not to just blame it completely on the media, but like Bernie's blowout victory in Nevada 
should have meant as much as Biden's victory in South Carolina. And it just didn't. Not for the media, not for, you know, not. You mean not, in terms of because also the, the massive Hispanic support, working class support, like it was Bernie won a huge vic- The margin just got bigger and bigger and bigger in Nevada. And workers and multiple communities got behind Bernie in a major way there. And it just didn't get the 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 pickup that it deserved. And it's um, you know, I don't want to say that the media chooses candidates, voters choose candidates. They do, and you have to get enough votes to win. But if we could go back and do things over again, I, I would see what we could do to to outflank them in Texas and win Texas. Um, we poured our heart. I campaigned in South Carolina and we poured our heart out there and I'm not from South Carolina. I'm from the South. I, I just had no idea the, the currency that Clyburn has there. Like it's not fake. It's real, man. People mm. like he, he to South Carolina was John Lewis to Atlanta wow. and Georgia. And wow. uh, the dude just, he has major juice and, to me, he's the guy who takes, he's the Congress, a member of Congress who takes the most money from the pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> That's how I know him. Well, you know, um, well, let me say, let me yeah. say this about Clyburn and even John Lewis. Um, b- these men who, who gave so much of their lives in the civil rights movement right, right. became hardcore politicians. Um, like, I, I said on Twitter several times about John Lewis, who I, who I revered. Um, yeah. People didn't give him enough, enough credit. I mean, he was a hard nosed bulldog of a politician and mm. you'd have to, I had a buddy who ran against him almost 15 years ago for his congressional seat. And uh, John Lewis's campaign started floating out bad checks that my friend wrote. <laughs> and it's like, holy crap. Like, wow. this, you know, this John Lewis, you know, I, I said he's like a, a an iron fist in a velvet glove, man. And, you know, uh, I, I love Julian Bond. And uh, there are lots of articles written about the original race for this congressional seat was between. John Lewis and Julian Bond. And there were these rumors that Julian Bond was using drugs. And at the time it, there, there wasn't, yeah, this, I remember like, that. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't this like legalization movement that we have now. And at a debate, John Lewis challenged Julian Bond to take a drug test then and there. Wow. And it was like, oh. <laughs> and it, it, I mean, it, it, it hurt him. It hurt, it hurt Julian Bond's feelings. It, it it also hurt him in the campaign. And um, he did that same stuff campaigning against Bernie. And, uh, you know, a lot of us in the Bernie camp, our feelings were hurt when John Lewis came out and he was like, listen, uh, I didn't know Bernie Sanders in the movement, but I knew Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton. And all of us were like, oh, hold on. What did this guy just say? Mm. And while it stung at the time, it's just a story about these guys, including Clyburn, including Lewis. I don't say anything that I just said as an insult. I say it to say right, right. these guys pivoted away from being civil rights leaders to becoming 
inside politicians and in ways good and bad in terms of their policy, in terms of the way they did things. And um, they decided to join the system. And um, I don't think John Lewis got enough credit for how savvy he was willing to use his um, his, his 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 reputation. He was fully willing to hit you over the head with it when he had to. And if you tried to critique him, you look like a real asshole because it's John Lewis and he knew it. <laughs> right. Right. And Clyburn's the same way. So it's like, you know, you say like, hey, you do know that nobody gets more money from the pharmaceutical industry than, than Jim Clyburn. And it's like, mm-hmm. hold on, hold on. You do know this man was a legend who put his life on the line for your civil rights and your right to vote. And it's like, damn, you know, uh, it's it's hard to critique these guys. And um Yeah, I know after after South Carolina, I don't know what show I was on, but I just got tired of listening to white people talk about how South Carolina is the capital of black America and represents black America and all this. And it's like, okay, white people, I don't know what you think, you know, Uh, first of all, yes. I mean, to be black in South Carolina, just think about what that has been like for two or 300 years. Right. Um, So God bless anybody uh, who stands up and fights uh, against that. But but again, coming from Flint and Detroit and thinking, well, what about African-Americans there or in Oakland or in Philly or Chicago, or the, we're going to decide this election before any African-American who lives in any, who from the Bronx to Watts to any, you know, yeah. um, to suburban Bernie, Chicago. Yeah. Where, where won every, every black demographic in California from deep in San Diego, all the way up to Sacramento, Bernie won black voters under the age of 45 in almost every state. And so it was Bernie's struggle, and this is real, and this is something that we have to wrestle with. Bernie's, and when I say Bernie, I, I, I use that as even like a shorthand for the campaign itself, struggled so mightily with older voters that the gap, it was costly. And, and Bernie's, and the campaign's inability to connect with not just not just older black voters where Bernie and the campaign got crushed in South Carolina and in a lot of States. Uh, and they're a reliable voting block who are very, who are very connected to, I don't want to say who are very connected to the traditional part of the democratic party, good, bad, or ugly, who feel like they fought and earned access to that part of the party. Um, you know, like I didn't understand that until I started having older black members of the democratic party who were, who had been a part of the party. Like, I mean, like a real hardcore part of the party, write me and call me and say, listen, Sean, we fought for decades for, uh, uh, to be delegates, to to uh, to be able to have this kind of inside access to the Democratic Party, and me and others were saying like, listen, we need to abolish the Electoral College. We need to do away with all the delegate math. And what I realized was, in the fifties and sixties and seventies, there were a lot of Black folk who fought to kind of have inside access to the party establishment, 
And we were kind of coming in with a sledgehammer and saying, like, who cares? That doesn't that that doesn't mean anything to me. Abolish this. Abolish that. And there was so there was just this huge generational gap in and that, you know, that hurt. And it was hard to get over it as much as we as much as we tried. Um, Older voters like I, I have to say it like this, like. Older voters view Joe Biden, particularly older black voters, viewed him through like Obama lenses. And in my own house, Obama is literally like with my wife, Obama is just like a little less than God. Mm. And his approval rating with African-Americans is like 97 percent. And so for them, Biden is very much he is in that lineage and that's a lot to overcome like i had friends who told me like whose parents didn't had i i asked people like did you ever like joe biden before he was obama's vice president and people almost universally would say no they didn't like him or didn't know him but for but for them, and I think this is key, I think I underestimated it. I think we all did. The power of being Obama's vice president for eight years, of being his right hand man. And f- for all we want to say about him, Obama, Obama seems to love him. And what Obama loves, there is this wing of the party that if he loves something, man, it can be a song. It can be a damn book. If he loves it, man, they love it. And and for them, Joe Biden was this guy who kind of had to humble himself, if you will, to, you know, to to be the wing man to this. For the white, the white man was willing to humble himself. Yeah, to be be the the wing man. Yeah, to be the wing man who to serve. Yeah. Yeah. Under the first black president. Yeah. Man, it carried weight. And I think all of us are looking at Biden's policies and his history and uh, and what we what I underestimated was the deep value that people placed with this man just being a a faithful wingman to the first black president for eight years. And for all the criticisms I have of Joe Biden and they are they are legion, uh, man, he was a faithful friend to Barack Obama, period. And you can't, you can't dispute it. And, uh, and for people who, who see Obama as, you know, um, a little less than a sacred figure that matters. And, uh, and, and that's what we were up against. Mm-hmm. And, and that's hard. That's hard to beat. Well, I had Cornell West on a couple of months ago and he also said he said he was going to, he was going to vote for Joe Biden. Um, and the way he said it was, and, and I've quoted him and now I just start to say it. It sounds like I thought of it, but I'm basically, <laughs> I, I try to, I try to credit him whenever I can, but he said, um, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden, but I'm not going to lie for Joe Biden. Hmm. Yeah. It's such a good way to put it. It's like, don't, I'm not going out on the campaign trail and make shit up so that it sounds good. 
I'm let gonna, me tell you. Let yeah. me tell you something that just happened to me. Yeah. I, I said it on. Uh, I said it on social media, and and the person who it happened with. So so the Democratic Party released their uh, their platform. The DNC released their platform, and I had several friends who were who were on those platform committees, and I thought the criminal justice platform that came out had major holes in it. And I was deeply frustrated that they didn't support Medicare for all. And several of my friends who served on those committees said that Biden's people on those committees were just determined to make sure that certain reforms didn't make it to the platform. Like they were dead set against the legalization of marijuana, which has already passed in 11 states in dozens of cities. It has massive bipartisan approval. And my friends who were on those committees said, Sean, somebody told them like they were unnaturally dead set against it. Somebody told them to be against it. And when the when the platforms came out, I, I posted on social media that Biden's platform for for justice reform is. And this is 2.0 for him. He had a platform when he was running. This is now the revised platform. It, it's worse today than virtually every major Democrats plan when they were running. And I had a congressperson who was a surrogate for Joe Biden call me and say, listen, please, I'm asking you to stop criticizing Joe Biden. Now, I've never said this publicly. I have decided to limit my criticisms of Joe Biden to like once or twice a week. <laughs> 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 so like I I have something to say every day and several times a day and I'm 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 routinely frustrated with him and the congressman who's somebody that I know who I, I I knew him only through like Twitter DMs called me several times we finally got on the phone and he was like listen I'm just asking you don't criticize him publicly and I was so pissed because my thought is with what you just said about what Cornell said, listen, I will vote for the man, but I'm not going to be silent. I'm not going to lie and say that the plan was good. It wasn't. And all I said was, please go in my original tweet, go back and do 3.0. You know, this if this is 2.0 of your justice plan, go back to the drawing board and do it again. You got time. And and that's how it has to be for me. You know, I'll vote, but I'm not going to lie for him. I'm not going to misrepresent his policies and say they kick ass when they don't. Um, and that has to be the role we play. And I know that what that means is I'll never get invited to the White House. I'll never be on those commissions. Um, I'll never be on the committees or boards. But I would still rather play the role of you know speaking truth to power and saying, like, listen, this is not OK. And I'll have to do the same thing on any of the policies that he has. I respect other people whose game is, hey, I'm going to play the inside game and, and I'm going to hold my tongue when I have to. Like, there's a role for people to do that. Um, I don't do that well. And and my job in this is to say, like, I, I want him I want his plans and policies to get better. And uh, and, and I won't not say that. I won't diss him personally. I won't talk about the way he looks or sounds or any like I won't be petty with my criticisms. Yeah. 
but I will focus on his policies. And, and when they suck, I'll say so. And, and somebody has to do that. I may take up some of your quota then if you're not going to use it. Uh, <laughs> if you're only doing once or twice a week, I'll do the other two or three. No, but I'm, no. but I, I, but I also, I mean, I don't know how to put this, but um, how are you going to feel about when he names uh, Susan Rice as his uh, vice presidential pick? You know, well, such, I, I hope that that's not, you know, a hawk. You know, I hope that's not who he picks. Yeah. And I and I hear over and over again that that they have rapport and that and hell that matters. You yeah. want to pick somebody that you trust. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there are there are better bad options. <laughs> like um there are there are other people that I see on his short list that if I had my dream candidate, I would not pick them. But there are other people on his short list that I would prefer. Um, I know Keisha Lance Bottoms, who's the mayor of Atlanta. I know her well. Uh, I, I, I don't agree with a lot of her platform and policies, but she's actually a progressive person. She's she has a great heart. She's a competent leader. Um, I've gained a lot of respect for Kamala Harris and people. Progressives hate me when I say that. I view her career in 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 kind of three stages. Her career as district attorney. I think she's as somebody who specializes in in electing district attorneys. I think we mistakenly look at her time as DA through 2020 lenses. And and that's kind of like she was a more progressive prosecutor than most at the time. But I have a lot of problems with her record as DA. I have a lot of problems with her record as attorney general. They weren't horrible. And anybody saying that they were like that you'd give her an, an F in those roles. She was a, a C plus in each of those positions. But as a senator, she's actually been deeply progressive. And, um, you know, people can can pick and, and, and nitpick at like old videos or old positions that I also have a problem with. But as a senator, she's been way more progressive than uh, than a lot of Joe Biden's other options. Um, you know, there are there are other people that uh, that he's talking about that I would prefer uh, than Susan Rice. Um, I hardly know what type of speaker or campaigner she she will be. And so there's a bit of an X factor there. Like, um, I just feel like he. He needs to pick somebody who is going to be great on the. I'm not dissing him. I'm just saying that it's going to be great on the campaign trail, great in interviews, great on television. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if that's Susan Rice or not. And, and I can't analyze her domestic policies. And, th and that frustrates me as well. You hope that the vice president could be somebody who could eventually run for president in four or eight years. And, um, you know, listen, she's uh, super. Susan Rice is super smart, but her positions, as you started out on issues of war and the military and stuff, are, they, they trouble me. But that's Joe Biden, too. And we, we, yeah. we don't talk about that. Right. They, they see eye to eye on that. Right. Right. Um, what what if just in case uh, Biden is listening right now, um, what, can't we all agree that if, if tomorrow he just announced that his running mate was Michelle Obama? that the election is essentially over <laughs> at that point. I mean, you know, I thought I, uh, I mean, I wrote an article 
almost two years ago saying like people that I thought and, and, and I, there, are, there are real criticisms like when me or you say like if Michelle Obama ran or was VP. Yeah. People, people hate this idea that she's a, she would be running on her celebrity. But um, that's how the yeah. Republicans win. That's yeah, they, they ran Reagan. They're they're always running. You know, people. We got a reality I mean, TV star in, in, in there sense, now. George, even in a sense, George W. Bush ran on celebrity as right. well. You know, he ran for governor as somebody with a name, but not somebody with some record. And uh, no, I mean, she has made it. She's made it clear that she, that, you know, oh, she yeah. that she wouldn't run. But right. uh, man, she would mop the floor with 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 Trump and everybody else. I mean, she would uh if the goal would be to win, yeah, man, you you literally couldn't pick somebody better. And uh you you know, I, I know that uh you know Joe Biden would love something like that. And I think he can pick I think he's doing well enough. And when I say he's doing well enough, I kind of mean he's not doing anything at all. Um Right. The less Joe Biden does and says, the better he does in the polls. Right. And right. Uh, it's that's frustrating. It's, you know, as somebody who wants to, uh, like, see somebody defend their position. I, I saw something that I was really troubled by. And it's again, it's like against the rules to say this. Several Democrats, you know. Two of the campaign debate uh, we- uh, 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 venues have canceled, and several Democrats are now saying that Joe Biden should not do the debate. And um, I, I, at first, I was like, "Are they serious?" And I went and watched the Sunday clips, and they were dead serious. And their argument was like, "Listen, Trump is so dishonest; you can't really have a sincere debate with him." But it's like, imagine if Trump said. Uh, I'm not doing the debates, man. The uproar would be would be crazy. And so I hate like we're in this period where it seems like Democrats, their goal is just to, like, keep Joe Biden as quiet as possible until he wins. And uh, that's just where we are. Mm. Well, um, we've got uh, just a couple of days short of uh, three months uh, here before before the election. And um I appreciate your all your thoughts on that. I have some other things I want to get into, though, in yeah, terms yeah, of uh, the Senate and the, these yeah. prosecutor races and uh, and uh, some other things. But um, I, um, we've just taken on a new underwriter here recently, and, and I need to just give them a shout-out. Yeah, yeah, man, of course. So our new underwriter, who we've had here now for a few weeks, is called Gabby, G-A-B-I. And Gabby is like Expedia and Travelocity and, and these others that help you find the best rate to uh, get a hotel room or a ticket or whatever. So Gabby does that for your homeowner's insurance or your car insurance. They will find you the lowest, absolute lowest rate. And it's completely free, completely free uh, service. Uh, They make their money from the insurance company, not you. So anyway, so I was getting ready to do the podcast tonight and I get this text and it's, it's from Charlie, the super of the apartment building here that I'm recording from right now. This is my guest bedroom. I'm going to, apartment here in New York city. And he sends me this thing. He says, he says, yeah, I just, I just, uh, I just did a, a survey for Gabby and they asked him a bunch of questions and how do you rate this one to 10? And they said, uh, how, how, how has your experience been with Gabby? And he, and he wrote down a 10 and then they asked him, well, um, why did you, 
why did you give us a 10? And then he wrote here, he, he copies us, he sends this to me, he goes, because Gabby sponsors Michael Moore's podcast, Rumble. And then Gabby writes back, thanks. We really appreciate your feedback. And I'm like, so I texted back. I said, what do you, so do you, why, why would they send you a survey? He writes, well, because I used Gabby. I said, you use Gabby? Yeah. He says, I heard you say it on the podcast. And I said, well, did you save any money? He goes, yes, hundreds of dollars. <laughs> He's texting me here. I said, whoa, okay. Um, that's good to know. And uh, this is Charlie, the super of the of the building here. So there you have a first uh, firsthand experience from a listener of the show and also the, the guy I call when there's a leak. That I just share that with you, those of you listening, because uh, I really... I believe in this company that's decided to believe in me and believe in this podcast as to support my voice is means a lot during this time. And Gabby is one of these organizations that have chosen to do that. And they do something good for you by trying to help you pay less to the insurance companies, which is, of course, something that I think all of us are in favor of paying the insurance companies less money. So anyways, as I, as I said, it's totally free to check your rate to see if you're paying too much. Uh, there's no obligation, none. Uh, it just takes two minutes. Uh, you can do it right now. Do it when the when the podcast is over to see how much you can save on your car and your homeowner's insurance. And especially during the time we're in right now, anybody that's helping us spend less money is is, a, is, a, is doing the Lord's work. So go to Gabby, Gabby.com, Gabby, G-A-B-I.com slash rumble. Okay, you got that? I'll say it one more time. Gabby, G-A-B-I dot com slash rumble. All right. Don't forget to put the rumble in there because they need to know that the people that are listening to this podcast support this podcast and, and in turn are supporting those who help underwrite us. And in turn, hopefully you will like my super here, uh, end up saving hundreds of dollars on his, uh, on his car insurance and his homeowners. Money. All right. So we're back uh, here with, uh, with Sean King, who's uh, got a new, uh, book out that what tell us i mean what's the the essence of this book it's sort of it's it's almost a hand uh, a handbook or a guide to what we all need to be doing right now and beyond the election it's yeah not just about trump you know let, let me tell you man i i tell a lot of my personal now you could tell we're in new york when you hear the I know. Do you, <laughs> do you leave the sirens in I would, I would definitely leave them in. Oh no, I, oh no, I always leave. I always leave whatever sound of New York. I figured you gotta leave that. Yeah, that's classic, man. You gotta leave it in. <laughs> it was, if I, if I, if I was making a movie, this would cost me money to afford these sound effects. I'd or I'd have to send a sound person out with all this boom equipment and get all. This that's is just, right. It's just yeah, no, that's just New York life, man. Yeah, yeah. It's right here and it's free right out the window. You know, man. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but in in 2014. Um, I was, I was in my early thirties and I was, I was the director of communications for an environmental charity called Global Green. And I had done a lot of communications work on my own and social media stuff and advocacy. Now I had fought against police brutality before I, I had, I had been a student leader when I was at Morehouse, I was student government president there. And when I was in 1999, when I was student government president, uh, a young man who was just a few years older than me at the time named Amadou Diallo was shot 41 times That's by right. the NYPD. Yeah. And we traveled as as young activists. We traveled from Atlanta to New York to protest. Uh, seven years later, there was another young man uh, named Sean Bell who was shot 
50 times just hours before his wedding on his wedding day. That's right. And uh, and again, no one was held responsible. And I so I've always fought and organized against police brutality for for almost three years. I taught full time as a teacher in Atlanta's jails and prisons at 13 different jails and prisons around Metro Atlanta. That was my full time job. And so I had this huge heart for mass incarceration and, and, and trying to dismantle it in any ways that, that we could. And in 2014, though, I found myself doing something wildly different. And my friends and, and, and people who knew me, though, still knew me as like a, a civil rights leader and somebody who organized against police brutality. So in the summer of 2014, I was at my cubicle. Uh, in the offices of Global Green, we're just a few blocks away from the beach in Santa Monica in Los Angeles. And I got a Facebook message and I tell this story in, in the early chapters of my book. I got this Facebook message that literally changed the entire direction of my life. My buddy who I went to Morehouse with had stumbled across this video on YouTube, which turned out to be the video of Eric Garner being killed. And at the time, we didn't even know the man's name in the video. And uh, it sounds wild now. And I have studied over 500 different videos of people being killed by police. I've written about hundreds of them. But at the time, there had never been a viral video of somebody being killed by police. In fact, where they actually showed the execution of this man. You know, like I had I had fought against the officers who killed Amadou Diallo and Sean Bell, but there wasn't a video of it. and. I had fought against the man who killed Trayvon Martin, but there was no video of that. And so there were a lot of these moments, but it was the first time in my life that I actually saw a real man be fully alive at the beginning of the video and fully dead at the end. And it just shook me up. And in that moment, I just made a decision like, I'm going to do something about this. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to call. I posted about it on my on my personal Facebook page. And for those next few days, I posted about it a lot. I researched about it a lot. And I came to know a young woman who ended up campaigning for Bernie all over the country, Erica Garner. Yeah, she loved Bernie fiercely. Like she hated politicians and so many politicians, including Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo, had really looked her family in the face and lied and said that they were going to do A, B, and C, and they never did it. And she had a deep distrust of politicians and and so I fought for justice for Eric Garner, and we got nothing. Three weeks later, um, Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson. That same week, a young man named John Crawford was killed in Ohio. Uh, a young man that same week was shot and killed by police in Los Angeles named Ezel Ford. And that year, there were over 1,100 people who were killed by police, about three a day. And not a single one of those families, zero, not five, not two, not one, zero families got any semblance of justice. And that continued for 2015, 2016. And after fighting for so many families, uh, I really hit a wall. And it caused me to say, are we doing something wrong here? Um, I knew our intentions were pure. I knew that we were fighting with our whole heart, I knew that people were right to protest, right to demonstrate, right to create hashtags and trending topics. But what I realized is that none of that was getting these families justice. And out of that, 
came the out of that frustration and realization came the notion that we have to change the people who make the decisions on who gets justice and who doesn't. And that's the local district attorney. There are 2,300 district attorneys in our country. They are almost all conservative, and that could be conservative Democrats or conservative Republicans. They're almost exclusively white. They are primarily male, and they're super conservative. And in this country, for hundreds of years, those district attorneys have basically done what they do in relative anonymity. Most people can't even name their local district attorney. They certainly can't name the district attorneys in other cities, but they are the local CEOs of the justice system. They decide who gets arrested and who doesn't, who gets charged, who gets charged harshly and who doesn't. They make huge decisions on who goes to jail and who doesn't. 95% of all incarcerated people come through those offices. And we decided to form our organization, Real Justice, to begin targeting the worst prosecutors in America and replacing them with compassionate, good people who were determined to change the system from the inside out. It's been some of the most fulfilling work that I've been a part of. And my book is not just about our work with Real Justice, but it's about the realization that I came to that how we think about change and how change actually works are often wildly different. And I know I've said a lot, but there's one fundamental principle, and and I want to say it because I think we're living right in it. We confuse hyper-awareness of a problem with being really close to solving it. And right now, Wow. Yeah. Yeah. As we, right now, we're in this position where there is a there is a heightened, even even powerful, profound awareness of injustice in America. But I need people to understand that this country is fully willing to be completely aware of a problem and do nothing about it. And what happens is we often see the awareness the trending topics, the breaking news, the the murals, the Black Lives Matter on the streets. We can have all of that and the system not change at all. And the book is about how awareness is 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 deeply important, but it's really only step one of a probably six step process of how you make change. And what happens is we, we put all of this energy into building awareness and we think that that puts us super close to solving the problem. And that's just not true. I wish it was true. If it yeah, was true, yeah, the problem yeah. would already have changed by now. If that was true, your documentaries would have solved so many problems because they, they make everybody beautifully, acutely aware. Now, they can be a gateway to solving the problems, but they don't solve, they don't solve the problems themselves. Boy, that's so true. And it's, it's highly unusual to listen to somebody say what you just said. There's very few people that I've met along the way. And I mean, especially on the left who are willing to have some sort of self analysis, self criticism of, are we doing the right thing? Are, are we succeeding at this? 
Well, let me tell you, let me, let me tell you, Michael, let me tell you what happened because I don't want to take credit for it. Let me tell you what really happened. And it's, it's painful. I made a big mistake, man. I, in 2014, in November of 2014, I said something for the first time and I repeated it over and over again. I got on the phone with the mother of Tamir Rice, who was a 12 year old boy who was shot and killed by police in Cleveland. And she was devastated. And I was on the phone with, with her brother, Tamir's uncle and her. And I told her, I was wanting to encourage her. I had, I had been a pastor for many years and I wanted to, I just wanted to say something encouraging to her. And I told her, I said, listen, hold on, just hold on, hang in there. We're going to get justice for your family. And at the time, I, I just couldn't imagine a scenario where her family didn't get justice. Well, I said that, that I said some version of that phrase. It felt right to say it. It encouraged families. I said that to dozens of families. Hold on, hold on, hang in there. We're going to get justice for your family. And it was like, it was soothing to families to hear it. And over and over again, I didn't say it knowing that it was a lie. I didn't think in my mind that I was over-promising and under-delivering. I thought we were going to get justice. I really, really believed it. I had never fought so hard for something and got nothing in return my whole life. Normally in my life, when I fought with my whole heart, I got something out of it. And I knew how I was fighting and how other people were fighting. And in 2017, uh, a young boy outside of Dallas was shot and killed. And I flew to Dallas to visit his family and his father. And he was the apple of his father's eye. His father opened the door. It was I was dreading the conversation and his father opened the door. And I was I had been rehearsing in my mind what I was going to say. And man, um, all I could all I could compare his father to was it looked like somebody had sucked the life force out of this man. Like he, mm. he looked like, like you would, you would make a ghostly figure in a movie. He was that. And uh, they invited me into the house and I sat in their living room and there was just like a weight, a, a silence and a pain in the room. And I got ready to open my mouth and say to that family, hold on, hold on, hang in there. We're going to get justice for your family. And I had a moment where I just said to myself, I can't say this anymore because I've said it to so many families and I meant it every single time. And not a single one of those families got justice. And when I sat down on the couch and thought about it, I was there with with one of my closest friends and partners, Lee Merritt, a civil rights attorney. And Lee and I said to the family something we had both never said to them before. We said to them, listen, we have fought for dozens and dozens and dozens of families. And this is going to be hard to hear, but not a single family we have fought for has gotten justice. Mm. But we hope to do something very different this time. And we hope that we can get some semblance of justice for your family. And that case was the first case that Lee and I worked on and won, and and the officer was convicted in that case. But it was a pivotal moment for me to say, I have to, I have to be 
I have to change something. I have to, I have to be introspective because like these problems weren't esoteric, man. I, I was visiting these, I was speaking at these, at the, at the funerals. I was visiting families in funeral homes. Um, I was giving eulogies for families and I, I just, I hit a wall where I knew I could not tell these families again that we were going to get justice for them. But I also was not going to just accept it. I knew that we were going to have to pivot and find another way to address the problem. So we've now helped to elect district attorneys in 20 different cities uh, in San Francisco, in Boston, in Philadelphia, deep in Jackson, Mississippi, in Austin, Texas. We won for the city attorney and the county attorney. We won for the city attorney and the county attorney in St. Louis. We won in five different cities in Virginia. And and we won in San Antonio, Texas. And so now I could go to any of those district attorneys and and not only dialogue with them about the job that they're doing, but if a family lost their loved one to police violence in those cities, it's not guaranteed that that family will get justice. But now we have a friend who runs that office and it puts us just that much closer to being able to hold people accountable. It took me failing shit, man, a hundred times to, to finally say, okay, I got to do something different. And, and it, I mean, it was a lot of painful loss. And, um, I knew several activists who, who grew to be deeply depressed, like clinical depression. There were two young men I knew who took their lives fighting for justice for these families and just losing over and over and over again, man, it was painful. And, um, and for these families, these aren't news stories. These are their sons, their fathers, their husbands, their daughters. And, uh, it's just deeply personal. And it was really out of that, that I just said, okay, everything that we were doing we did with the right intentions. It just wasn't working. And I, I try to approach most problems with, with that perspective now to say, how can we do something that's going to actually work? And, uh, it, but it took a lot of loss and a lot of failure. Uh, well-intentioned though, though it, it might've been, it was just a lot of loss and a lot of failure to say, okay, we got to do this differently. Mm. And, um, same thing. We, you know, we've won 20 district attorneys races, but we've lost 20 and all 20 that we lost ripped our hearts out. And each time we lost, we had to say, what, what did we do wrong here? What miscalculation did we make? What, what could we have done better? And we use those lessons and we do basically uh, an, an autopsy of all of our failed campaigns to say, like, where did we where do we fumble this? And uh, I mean, we've got our asses handed to us in in races that I just knew we were going to win. And you have to go back and say, OK, we messed up somewhere. Where do we miscalculate? Where do we misunderstand this so that we don't duplicate that? And uh I share a lot of those lessons in the book 
and try to and try to show people that it, even if your issue is not justice reform, if your issue is the environment, if it's healthcare, if it's the economy, if it's whatever it may be, I try to share the lessons where you can apply them to whatever it is you want to do to make the world a better place. Yeah, I've, I I have to tell you, I've been going through the same sort of uh, epiphany that you just described for yourself, and you you know you bring up my documentaries, and I've I've been saying this for the last couple of years that. It's not enough that, oh, people say, oh, I love that film, Pulling for Columbine or Fahrenheit 9-11 or whatever. Yeah, but what did it do? You know, I made, I made Pulling for Columbine just, uh, it's, I started at the afternoon mm. of a Columbine, of the mm-hmm. actual, just, I just, right. we were doing our, our TV show then, The Awful Truth, and I just pulled everybody in the room. I said, we have to do something about this because now that it's happened, a mass shooting like this in a school, this won't be the last. We've right. got to. We have got to get on this right now. I was so afraid that this would become a thing. And now people were saying, no, Mike, you know, you're just, you know, overreacting. It's obviously a tragedy, but, but it, mm-hmm. it, 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 we made that film with that intention that that would be the last school shooting. The first right. would be the last. And of course you take it all that, you know, now there's, you know, there's been, well, there's kids haven't been in school now. So there've been, there've been no school. Shootings. It's the only, the only thing that stopped mass school shootings was a pandemic where yeah. kids were in school. Otherwise we would have had more and more and more all, all throughout 2020. It would have happened. But when the son of a vice president of general electric went into an elementary school in Newtown, Connecticut and blew the heads off, yeah. And I mean, blew the heads off yeah. uh, uh, 20 first graders and nothing happened after that. Yeah. I was like, wow. Yeah. Wow. Because um, usually, um, I'm sorry to make this a racial thing, but we're in the middle of, of fighting against state violence, police violence uh, caused through racism and bigotry. Um, and these are white. This is a white community, white, white people. Well, like all people around the world, they love their kids. Why didn't, I mean, you know, so many of the parents did boy, and they formed some great, they've got sure. still yeah, they, they did everything. They they did. Did. Yes, they did. And I admire them and honor them. And, but the rest of America, just let it go. And I, I start thinking then, and, and at the same time, the, the Flint water, what they call the water crisis, yeah. the poisoning of a majority black city uh, was taking place. And so I would go to Flint and meeting with people and talking to people, trying to get some of it down on film, whatever, to, in case I was going to maybe do something with that. But I didn't know how I could help. Because I was feeling helpless, and I had been focusing on Flint through so many years, and I I wanted to start just saying what you just said to people, that I can't promise you that Flint is going to be saved, because this, this destruction of our hometown mm. has been so for profound over so many years, and it started back in the late 70s. And um, once they decided they thought they could get away with it, and that's why I made my first film on it, because I didn't want them to get away with it. 
uh, Roger and me as it was like, but, and then I would always find whether it was Bowling for Columbine, you know, we came back to Flint during that film, uh, Fahrenheit 9-11, came back, interviewed a mother, lost a son in Iraq, uh, you know, came back with Sicko. Every film, always hoping, like, I'm not going to forget Flint. I'm not going li- to, and yet, and yet after 20 years of that, and, and now 30 years of it for me, um, not having the guts to just say to people in Flint, the cavalry is not coming. Yeah. Um, we, our, our black city here mm-hmm. had eight years of a black president who said a lot of good things and really did nothing to save Flint. And, and, and African-Americans, black citizens know that in Flint. And, oh, they, there's a, yeah. Know, people who may be listening to this, they may think you're speaking on behalf of those citizens, but man, if you go to Flint, uh-huh. the pain and the betrayal. Yeah. See, I experienced that same thing, Michael, with Erica Garner, who had been promised by three people that they would handle the case of, of her father's murder. Yeah. Uh, a, a, the attorney general Holder promised her. He has now talked about that in retrospect. Loretta Lynch promised her. And then she had an opportunity to meet President Obama, who looked her right in the face and promised her that they would take care of her case. And Obama's administration ran out and they did nothing and literally passed it on to the Trump administration and her family was crushed. And, and, and that's what happened. That's that's like that anger in Flint is real, man. It's, it's just like, damn, you bailed out on us. Yeah, it was so real and nobody's really written the story, but you, you've been there. So, you know, you, and, and I'm talking about, I'm talking about the black community in Flint and Flint's just a poor city. It's, it's so, the, the, an interesting thing has happened over the last few years, which is um, the poor white people who had lost their jobs and who were living sort of in the sort of the near suburbs, as they would call it, uh, were losing their homes, lo- uh, evicted in the crash of 08, and moved back to Flint because it was the only place you could afford to live. And mm. So now it's a, it's a city that's that's essentially full of poor people, 55% of whom are black and 45% of whom are white. Mm. Uh, but it's an interesting almost half and half mix of very poor people, but, but for black Flint and the betrayal um, that has been, that has gone on for so long and all president Obama, whom I love and voted for, and, you know, we'll never forget crying in the voting booth as I marked his name. (laughs) Yeah. I campaigned for him and, 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 and love and respect so much, but it doesn't mean. And to this day I do. Yes. Yeah, it doesn't mean that that Flint was not neglected in in a way that's just unfathomable. And all, all he had to do, Sean, was send the Army Corps of Engineers into Flint, dig up the pipes, dig up the poisoned pipes that had been poisoned by what the governor did, making people drink out of the Flint River. Um, dig them up and put the new pipes in. And that would be the end of it. And, and you, could do that. you could do it in a year. It'd all he had to do. It would have been 
man, you and I would be on here. Like I, I see, I see Donald Trump in the same way. And I try to not, not in this, I don't mean to say I compare him to president Obama, but I look at the coronavirus pandemic and I say over and over again, I was like, damn man, if you just led in this moment, Donald Trump, people who never respected you would have, but he's not capable of it. He's an incompetent leader. He's so self-centered, but like, if he had led, if he had surrounded himself with experts that he respected and trusted and just said, listen, we're going to hunker down and we're going to fight it and we're going to yeah. fix it and yeah. we're going to do the hard things that it takes. Listen, we're going to be paying for what it costs for a generation, but damn it, we're going to do it together. Here's how we're going to do it. I mean, listen, it, you know, leaders lead and that's something that, you know, all presidents look back on their terms and eventually say, I wish I had done A, B, or C. I hope that in when when President Obama's, you know, major autobiography comes out, I hope that he looks back on Flint and says, uh, I dropped the ball there. You know, it that needs to be a part of his book. Yeah. You know, like it needs to be an acknowledgement. Because he could have done that without the Senate. You know, there's yeah. always this thing, yeah. well, he couldn't do anything because it because Mitch McConnell is like, no, nah, no, nah, he could have directed the resources of the federal government and done just what you said. And it would have been this beautiful success story of his yeah. presidency. Yeah. It was like, in spite of all the limitations that were placed on him and they were real, that he did this thing. I think that Michael Eric Dyson says something. And when he first said it, it really bothered me. And it took me a few years to actually accept that he was right. He said that, because President Obama was the first black president, that in a lot of ways he felt this burden to not do super black things politically, policy wise. Yeah. And and Michael Rick Dyson wrote this big endorsement of Hillary Clinton and he campaigned for her and, and he campaigned for Joe Biden in the same way. And he said, listen, I think Hillary Clinton who is not bound by some of these weird, problematic confines of race and racism in the way that a black president feels like, hey, I can't do A, B, or C because it'll look like I'm being partial in this way. Whether that was true of why President Obama didn't help Flint or do other things, we could debate that. But I do know that when black people are often elected to higher office, there is is a peculiar reluctance to fully go all in on a super black agenda. And um, I don't know if that factored into Flint, but um, it had been a beautiful part of his legacy. Yeah. And, and the thing is, you get this kind of eight year window. You and I have no idea what it's like to be president and all the pressures and struggles. But uh, that would have been something that would have would have followed him everywhere had he gotten it done. Well, it also, and it gave us Trump in a, in a, a oh, way that was not intended, but uh, there were 8,000 African-American voters in Flint who mm -hmm. once or twice, depending how old they were, voted for Obama in 08 and 12. 8,000 Obama voters stayed home in 2016 and did not come out to vote for Hillary because in my humble opinion, you've been there. It's people, the anger 
and the despair. Um, you, know, you know, I'm from I'm from rural Kentucky, and I talk about this in my book. And my mother uh, worked for almost 45 years in this light bulb factory in Versailles, Kentucky, Sylvania lamp plant. It's it's now closed and is no longer there, like most factories across the country. And my whole family, my mother was a and, and still is. My mother's a deeply devoted Democrat, but my whole family, all of her brothers who all fought in the Vietnam War and others, they were. They were rural white Democrats. They grew up deep in eastern Kentucky, literally working in coal mines, like the most stereotypical coal mining men that you could imagine. They were deeply devoted to the Democratic Party because they believed in in the 70s and 80s. And even my Uncle Wayne, who, who is still alive, he's my mother's only living brother. They all lived very hard lives. Uh, he even was a state legislator in Kentucky for the Democratic Party, and uh, they loved the Democratic Party and actually voted for President Obama. And um, for the first time in his life, my Uncle Wayne, at 70 years old, uh, voted for Donald Trump. And this is a lifelong Democrat, a former state legislator, a man who had fought for unions, and he was duped into believing that Donald Trump actually gave a damn about him, about the coal mines, about people in rural America. And Donald Trump played that. But what people still and, and you can't talk about it in a way that people respect, because it is true that Donald Trump played to racism and played to to bigotry and white supremacy. All of that's true. But the Democratic Party abandoned working class people a long time ago. They abandoned my uncle Wayne, who legitimately felt like he, he when he voted for President Obama in Boston, like he he didn't feel like President Obama or, or the Clintons or anybody. He didn't, he didn't feel like that uh, Chuck Schumer. He didn't feel like they understood him, respected him. And and there just grew to be this real deep divide. And although Donald Trump is, I, I literally think he is probably the best bullshit artist in the history of Earth. A man who literally lives in a gold-plated penthouse above Central Park in New York City, convinced rednecks in, in the hollers of Kentucky that he gave a damn about them only because he actually talked to them. And Democrats bailed out on them a long time ago. And they bailed out on on communities all over the country, including Flint, including deep inside of communities in Milwaukee. And a couple of weeks ago, it was it was a semi embarrassing moment for me. I said something and Donald Trump Jr. retweeted it. He retweeted it because he, he liked it and wanted to use it for political gain. But damn it, man, it's true. And it's embarrassing. I've only voted for Democrats my whole life. But I said in my tweet that every American city with horrible, horrible cases of police brutality from Seattle to Portland to New York City to Minneapolis, man, those cities are controlled from top to bottom by Democrats. And it's true. And in, in, including the district attorneys, the police chiefs, the mayors, the city councils in all of these cities where we're seeing this horrible police violence, including Louisville, 
which has a Democratic mayor, a Democratic district attorney. Kentucky now has a Democratic governor. And the murder of Breonna Taylor, there were Democrats who could have stepped in and intervened for justice, and they didn't. And, and people are, people are, are kind of rubbed so raw by it and kind of just, you know, it causes people to just say, oh, I don't have, I don't have anybody who cares about me in either party. Um, and when someone like Trump comes in and does something stupid and says, well, I care, you know, I care about black people. I care about rednecks and, and all he doesn't, it's all, it's all a con, but he is the first person in a long time to actually even say that to people. And, um, and the Democrats have to come to grips with the reality that they created a vacuum that allowed a con man, a damn reality TV show host to come in and fill the hole created by the, the fact that Democrats bailed out on poor people and working class people from all races and backgrounds all over this country and and continue to do it. They did it in Kentucky when they Charles Booker was a once in a lifetime candidate running for Senate in Kentucky to defeat Mitch McConnell. But Chuck Schumer and the Democratic Party insisted on supporting Charles's opponent and Charles barely lost. And he would have given Mitch McConnell a real run for his money. But the Democratic Party continues to work against itself. And um, it's frustrating, you know, like I feel sometimes like the Democratic Party is like a, an abusive spouse. <laughs> you know, it's like, damn, I'm here, but you keep doing us wrong. Over and over and over again, but you don't have anywhere else to go uh, that is built up and can sustain itself, and so uh, it's it's maddening, man. Okay, so uh, the battle this election, as you know, isn't just Trump versus Biden. Uh, the battle is: do we have a free, fair, democratic electoral process this year? You know, what? What are you doing, Sean? Seriously, what, what, uh, tell me, because I, I know you're up to some good here. What's your organization doing and what should everyone listening do to make sure that we have an open and fair election this year? Yeah, I, well, I think first and foremost, we should not assume the best intentions from Donald Trump, from the Republican Party, from from his his cabinet, from his staff to 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 the Republicans in Congress, I think there's no punch, uh, including uh, with uh, Republican governors and legislatures across the country. They've already proven to us over and over again that they, that they will go as deep and as dirty as they feel they need to to get a victory. I, I just saw um, uh, just a few hours ago that. They are trying to announce that they're going to cut the the collection period for the United States census by a month. Many people had been campaigning for it to be extended. Instead, they're going to cut it by a month, which many people think is just a clear act of, of suppression of the census, which shapes congressional districts and resources and so many other things. And so we have to understand that from from today forward. We should assume that Donald Trump and every supporter of his in power is going to do everything they can to suppress votes. Uh, they won't fight fair. They'll fight dirty and just 
apologize or even if that at, on the back end. And they're already undermining the integrity of the presidential election. And so we're going to have to do everything we can. And I hate that it's having to be done in a pandemic, but we're going to have to do everything we can to get as many people to vote in as many places as they can vote in as many ways as they can vote, uh, voting by mail, voting by absentee ballot, making sure that people are registered to vote. These are things that we traditionally do, you know, when we're not in a pandemic. But I think we're going to see fewer people vote because of the pandemic. But what that also means is that there will be an opportunity to win in places that maybe we've never won before. I believe the Democrats can win. Not only could Joe Biden possibly win in a place like Texas or Georgia, I believe that other down ballot Democrats can win Senate seats in places that it just seemed impossible. I believe that Jamie Harrison could literally defeat Lindsey Graham in South Carolina. They're almost neck and neck, but it's going to take Democrats being enthusiastic about local candidates. It's going to take doing all of the things um, that we're going to have to do to protect the integrity of the elections to do it. Otherwise, um, you know, we should assume that they're going to pull every trick and create new um, new obstacles that we never imagined. Even Trump's suggestion that we move forward the date of the election, we can say that he doesn't have the power to do that. And that's kind of been the consensus. But he pushes the boundaries of what a president can do. He pushes those boundaries every single day. And so we just have to figure out how do we win by the biggest margins in as many places as possible. And for so many communities that we care about, um, who is president, who is governor, who is senator, it matters. And uh, we're going to have to to fight and vote like our lives depend on it. So you feel confident about flipping the Senate? What I believe, I think there's, even as late as it is, it's it's now August, that so many things could change over these next few months. But I believe it's fully possible that Democrats could not only take back the Senate, but could win in seats that have been Republican strongholds for a very long time. And, and here's the reality. As the pandemic just hammers Southern states like Florida, like Georgia and South Carolina and Texas and New Mexico and Arizona. Um, it's not just saying like people want Trump out in those places. People are frustrated that they are being represented by politicians in the Senate and governor's races uh, who aren't really fighting to keep them safe, who haven't protected their jobs, who haven't protected their health care. And so people really see the qualitative difference. And my hope is that all over the country, people actually vote for their self-interest. And often um, people who vote for Donald Trump and others are literally voting against their own safety and security and well-being. Uh, they may do it for all types of other reasons, but I'm hoping that um, that this is a, a, a pivotal moment in American history where people say we could do better. And there are great people running in races in all 50 states that people have an opportunity to really vote for and, and empower and put into office. Well, Sean, thanks uh, so much for this. Uh, thanks for this incredible conversation tonight. Uh, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, man. Take care. All right. And um, 
Goodbye to all of you who are listening uh, to this episode uh, today. Uh, greatly appreciate it. And uh, don't forget, Sean's book is called Make Change. Brand new book, Make Change. And I'll have a link uh, to it right here on my uh, on my uh, podcast uh, site. I want to thank uh, the executive producer of Rumble, Basil Hamden, our editor and sound engineer, Nick Quaz, and everybody else who's helped uh, to make this uh, podcast the success uh, that it is. As I mentioned on the previous episode here, we just passed the 14 million mark, uh, 14 million downloads, listens here since we started. It's just incredible. Thank you, everybody who is listening. Write to me at mike at michaelmore.com. I read all my my own email. And if you want to leave a voice message to me, just click the link and it, and it calls me up. You get one minute. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry I will not be able to call you back because I am jammed with so many calls and letters, but I do listen and I do want to hear and I need uh, your advice and your feedback. So, so please, uh, please feel free to do that. It's important. And please tell people about this, this podcast, uh, share it with your friends and your neighbors and your family. Um, we've got three months here, basically. We have three months and uh, less than three months really now. So um, you know what the work is that we have ahead of us. And I thank you for being willing to do that work. Um, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. This is Rumble with Michael Moore. Dedication, hard work, plus patience to some more of my sacrifice. I'm done waiting, I'm done waiting. Told you that I wasn't playing. Now you hear what I've been saying. Dedication. It's dedication. Ah!